Hello and welcome to Poetry Non-Stop. I'm Patrick Widdis and I'm joined by Jonathan Davidson, a poet, writer and literature activist. When I read about Jonathan's latest book, A Common Place, I could tell he was someone who likes to lift the lid on poetry, explore its inner workings and share that with a wider audience. In other words, just the sort of poet for this podcast. We had a long conversation, so long in fact I've divided it into two. In the second half you can hear Jonathan talk about his new book, but in this first part we're going to take a look at one of his poems and how you can find poetry in technology. Over to Jonathan. Okay, so this poem is called Printing. It is a bit about Gutenberg uh, and his uh, invention of the printing press but it's also a bit about a relationship. Printing. As sheet after sheet of lightly embossed lust is lifted from the press of ourselves, this industry we've purposely established is not unlike the printing of a book. The little letters forming on our tongues, our consonants and vowels are what's unsaid that finds itself repeatedly imprinted in sweat for touch to read a meaning there. We speak the sentences that make the moment as close to permanent as flesh can stand and take the words to heart and let them lie, enfolded, trimmed and bound. But books are dead before the ink is dry. Take off your glasses, put down what you're reading, let us apply our typesetter's eyes and nimble fingers to make another page of hard-pressed text. So uh, you said it's about uh, printing and a relationship. I think that both those things come through very clearly. What was the actual starting point? Was it the printing or the relationship? (laughs) Well, I I, I like to read lots of different things. And on holiday, we took away a book about Gutenberg and his uh, development of the printing press. I like to read that kind of stuff and I read it and it didn't really do much for me other than being a very interesting story and it's good for me to know where all this printing stuff came from and then I suppose I was looking for a way of writing about relationships and sex and lust and thought that a printing press might be suitably distant from that subject. It's not an obvious thing to use as a metaphor uh for human relationships um in fact it's almost the the most unobvious thing to use which set me a challenge could i find in the process of printing and what i then knew of it and what printing produced for us books and so on could i find the metaphor that might reveal something about a human relationship would it be appropriate or would it be ridiculous so this poem had goodness, probably 40 or 50 versions. I mean, it really went through the ringer. It it had a whole bigger uh, hinterland at one point. It was also about politics and about nationalism and all of that kind of fell away because some poems can't carry everything you want them to carry. They can only carry a certain amount. So in the end, I decided I'm going to write a poem about printing, which is really about people um, having sex or and being in love and about lust and about 
the momentariness of that experience against the permanence of books and possibly the permanence of that experience against the fragility of books and we'll see how that goes so it's it's playing with ideas the idea that a book is permanent of course books are permanent but books um, don't last and they get burnt and they get forgotten and sex is brief and momentary sometimes less brief let's hope but actually the experience of being with somebody close physically can last and can last as long as a book can so i was playing with those two ideas also i wanted it to be quietly witty and to have some um, curiosity about it so the notion that in the first line as sheet after sheet of lightly embossed lust is lifted from the press of ourselves I mean, that's pushing the metaphor as far as I can take it, really. A printing press is not really like two human beings together. Although, you know, in a way, in a way it is. I'd never used the word lust before in a poem. And I'd probably not use the word embossed either. But these are words I, I, I came across as I started to work with the material. And I do like in my poems, if I can, to use the language of industries, the language of specialisms, so long as I don't close people out. So embossed is not a it's not a specialist word, but clearly it's a word about printing and it can be a word about human relationships and physicality. Yeah, yeah. Is it usual for your poems to go through so much development? Well, yes, it is, I think. I mean, occasionally, probably of all of us, we're we're gifted a poem that takes 60 seconds to write down and a couple of drafts to just tweak the odd bit here and there and then it's ready but most poems particularly when you get to become maturer as a poet and you've written lots of work I think most poems demand hard work certainly the way I write them draft after draft it's also testing whether the poem will last in your interest and whether it will withstand you constantly rewriting it I hold off typing them up until I've feel I'm, I'm close to something that might be right. So I'm writing lots and lots of handwritten drafts in two different notebooks, switching between the notebooks to increase the speed of that process. And then when I type them up, I know that the act of typing them up makes them look like they're finished. And of course, they're not finished, but you type them up and you think, oh, they're almost finished. They look so nice. For that reason, I, use, uh, I always use Courier as my typeface. Courier is a typeface that used to be used by old typewriters. It's a really uninspiring typeface. And for that reason, I think it doesn't carry too much sense of finish about it. It's not the typeface you would normally have in a book of poems. So I use that typeface to remind myself that this is not a finished poem. It's just on the way there. So often when I've typed up the poem, I will then rewrite it in my notebook and start that process again. And then I'll go back to the type version, and write an edited version. So within the notebooks and the type versions, I'm, I'm clocking up, you know, 40 to 50 versions of the poem before I eventually decide I, I can't take it any further. And occasionally they just fall apart in the process. And uh, the process of typing it up again or writing it by hand again makes you realize I haven't got anything here. It's just gone. Of course, the process of editing is, in my mind, not about trying to necessarily make the poem better it's about trying to edit back to the original impulse that got you writing the poem and i think that there's a danger that when we edit we lose sight of what it was that prompted the poem and of course that is almost always the most interesting and important aspects of the poem is that impulse that started you off so when i'm editing i'm constantly thinking how do i get back to where i started um, how do i stop drifting away from the center of the poem 
and what is the centre of the poem. So that's why it takes so long. I have very little confidence in my poetry. And I hear of people who, you know, write a couple of drafts or they write 10 poems in an evening and I admire their confidence, but that's just never going to be the way I can work. Not now I've got older. When I was younger, maybe I did more. But even then, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, when I was really learning my craft, I was in that culture of poetry writing at that time in the early 1980s where it was expected that you redrafted. We were in reaction against um, Ginsburg saying first thought, best thought. You know, we were absolutely against that because it had been, I think, proven to be suspect in many cases. And Ginsburg's thoughts were often so long. And I like a short poem. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. And it's, it can be difficult to have that perseverance and uh, you know, keep pushing to that uh, higher standard, um, but uh, also, I guess, knowing for sure when a poem really is finished and the best it can be. Yes, that's, that's not easy. I do, um, for many years, I wrote in almost complete isolation. When I was in my early 20s, I went to a poetry writing group led by a, a very good poet who I'm still in contact with 35 years later. And, and she was fantastic, a woman called Catherine Byron, fantastic at convincing me that I was a poet, the first person to ever call me a poet in a workshop. Can we now hear the poet read the poem? You know, it's a, it sounds like nothing, but when you're 22 and you're amongst people who are much older than you and more experienced and you're rather nervous about being in this room, to have somebody say that is, was wonderful. And, and to watch other people editing their poems and f- to watch other people who are far more experienced than me take criticism on the chin and think, yes, I need to work at it. So I wasn't in a poetry group then. And then for most of my uh, writing career, I've, I've been on my own. And in the last two or three years, I've, I've joined, a, uh, I'm part of a small private poetry group in Birmingham, the Zelig Group, which uh, is very good. Um, a whole range of interests and styles amongst the poets present. And although they are full of praise, they are also very good at uh, telling you when the poem isn't quite right. Although, of course, the act of just presenting it, you know, even as you read it out, you realise, oh, this isn't right. And that's okay. You know, I've had to tell myself not to take my best work, my finished work to a a workshop group. There's no point. You'll only be frustrated if people say, actually, it's not finished. Much better to take the work that you know is ropey and see what they find in it that's worth persevering. And it, it does give you then confidence to carry on with the poem because it's so easy, of course, in the in the late hours to um, uh, to give up on poetry and not want to uh, pursue a poem. And um, so, with the printing poem, uh, have you ever been inspired to write other poems uh, inspired by technology or technological processes? Yes, I like things. I like the physicality of things. I- I'd be lying if I said I'd written poems about nuclear fusion. No, I'm not. I don't understand it. So I don't write about it. I've written quite a number of poems about bricks, brick making and brick laying, because bizarrely enough, I have an interest in that craft because of what it physically is. I do a lot of cycling in the countryside. So I'm always looking out for interesting walls, and interesting buildings. These are just, uh, you know, the acts of a, uh, a person who's got too much time on his hands. But also I know about how bricks are made and I know about uh, the different bonds and I know about the background to it. So all that's interesting. But also I'm then interested in the politics behind how we relate to this very humble building material and the fact that almost all of the people who made bricks and have built most of Britain, certainly up until the the late 20th century, all of those people are entirely forgotten. Um, We talk about the architects 
rarely of brick buildings, but occasionally. But we talk about architects and we talk about people who own buildings. We rarely talk about the people who actually made the bricks and laid the bricks. And of course, it's a very human act to put a brick on top of another brick. You can't automate it. If you're going to build with bricks, it needs people. It's often a work undertaken by immigrants, not originally in the UK, but certainly, you know, for the, for the 20th century, uh, there were lots of Irish bricklayers and so on. Unskilled job, although actually in many ways very skilled. So I've written a bit about that. And uh, I, I know a bit about the um, propagation of apples because I worked in an orchard and carried that interest over. And I've read a lot about apples and I, you know, I, I like to look at different varieties and stuff. So I've written a bit about the culture around that, the history and the, the current culture around uh, apples. That's not particularly about politics. It's as much about relationships because, of course, apple is a, an apple. The apple is one of the original metaphors we, we are given as, a, as human beings. It features in almost every uh, major culture and certainly in most of the major religions. Although the apples may well have been pomegranates, but, you know, an apple is uh, this notion of fecundity coming from this strangely attractive thing, which we can also eat and which has pips in it and you know, it has all sorts of interesting connotations and can also be made into cider to make us drunk. Or, yeah, you know, God, don't get me started on apples. They are wonderful. It's amazing uh, how much you can learn and discover from these everyday objects. Uh, what first got you interested in bricks? I live, I grew up on clay. Uh, I like to know what rock I'm on. And I grew up on, grew up on clay. So if you grow up in a clay area, you, you have brick buildings. If you grow up in a uh, obviously in a stone area if you're up in the Pennines you're going to have stone buildings so lots of brick around me and then I just I, I got to hear about I read a little bit about bricks and I I like the language of it the bonds which is the description of how bricks are put together they're called things like Flemish bond English bond stretcher bond Sussex garden bond and I immediately want to know what, why is it Flemish you know where does that come from and of course um, Belgium and Flanders is built on clay as well they're big brick people so suddenly you find yourself reading about a different culture a different country and its relationship with its building materials and what bricks mean to them and in fact in my book there is the opening poem uh, is not by me there are 12 or so poems by other people and the opening poem is by uh, a very good poem, poet called Richard McCaffrey and it is called Brick and it is about him spending some time in Belgium and writing about the importance of bricks to Flemish culture in a small way. You know, he, he's not a brick enthusiast as I am, I don't think, but you know, he, he recognised that this very humble piece of day-to-day uh, -day life said more about the way we live and the way we are than we might expect. So I like the language, I like to discover the language and um, a, a hawk and a bolster, you know, they are things you use to lay bricks. And, you know, when Shakespearean Hamlet says, I can tell a hawk from a handsaw, he may be talking about the hawk up in the sky, or he may be talking about the hawk used to make bricks, because, of course, Shakespeare came from lowland England. He came from the Vales. Um, they have a lot of brick in Stratford. So I like to think he was also a brick enthusiast. That's, that's where the similarity between me and Shakespeare ends, I'm afraid. Yes, uh, I didn't know I'd learned so much about bricks in this uh, conversation. <laughs> I must apologise, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well, uh, so in response to your printing poem, I uh, think uh, your idea was that the rest of us should uh, have a go at writing poems about uh, technical processes. 
Yes, yes. So I suppose my, um, part, my, my prompt for, for you and your, your listeners is to identify a technical process. It can be as simple as you like. It can be pedaling a bicycle. <clears throat> we all know how that works. It could be nuclear fusion. It could be the internal combustion engine. It could be simply how a key turns in a lock to open a door. Uh, read up on it a bit. Go into Wikipedia or hunt out some text about it and furnish yourself with some of the language but uh, that particular process, that culture of making those things uh, has, has delivered. And maybe look into the origins of some of those words. Why are the individual words used particularly? Where have they come from? Sometimes if a word has got a Germanic root, it suggests it comes from the day-to-day life of people. If it's got a Romance root or a Greek or Roman root, it might be coming from a more higher form of technology, should we say. Um, and that can be an interesting pointer as to what were your, your area of technology is going to lead you. But of course, every piece of technology is a wonderful metaphor. Uh, a car driving on a motorway, that's a metaphor, as um, Kraftwerk showed us. And nuclear fusion is definitely something about creativity and creation. So that's a metaphor. And even just a key turning a lock and opening a door, that says something about human beings and the importance of privacy and the importance of power and uh, who controls the making of keys and who first introduced locks and when did we start to lock our doors and all those kind of questions which will hopefully bounce around in people's minds as they start to doodle in their notepads with words about locks and keys and so on. Yeah, so it's not a very sophisticated uh, writing exercise but it might lead to something and the hope is it will get somebody writing a poem using images, ideas, words that they would not normally have chosen to use. It's very easy, I find, as a writer to fall back into the same range of words. You know, I I have to stop myself writing about chalk hills because I come from that kind of country. It's too easy for me to write about it. And I do want to force myself to embrace another area of language, particularly if you're the sort of poet who is inspired as much by the words you choose to use as by your own personal experience and I, I certainly find myself increasingly inspired by the language that I stumble across and where that might have come from and how I might use it. Yeah and um, I think as you've shown with the discussion of bricks there's lots you can discover and lots of interesting words and ideas you can weave into your poems. I had a quick attempt in the last week or so. I've had to uh, mend a few punctures on my bike recently. So um, I uh, took that uh, humble process as uh, inspiration and I came up with this. This is called Flat. It's like being kissed better by an octopus. The gooey slobber, the patch that sucks so tight it becomes part of you. I was on a roll when it happened again, and you peeled back my outer skin, plunged me in cold water, groped every inch of me until you found the bubbles rising like inverted tears. Now I'm pumped, looking good all round, but it's the pressure on my inner walls keeping me up. Even your weak long nails make me flinch. Wow, that's fantastic. It's that's I mean, it just shows, doesn't it? You, you, you found so much in that process and in the physicality of the tire and how it works and so on. Things we wouldn't have thought of, you know, really interesting. Yeah, I like that very much. Thank you very much. That was that was good. Yeah. 
So, okay, yeah. you've set the standard. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's a great idea. I think it's also a, a great idea to kind of sort of having your back pocket really. I, I can see myself maybe in future if there's something I want to write about, I'm not sure how to go about it. I might start thinking, well, you know, is there some kind of uh, technical process or something which I can use to talk about this uh, in a more sort of interesting or original way? Yes. I mean, what, it, it's an obvious thing to say, of course, is that much poetry works because it says one thing and means another. And that's such a simple statement to say one thing and mean another. It's also such a sophisticated thing to do because you have to play very carefully with that process. But to my mind, you know, so much of the poetry I enjoy is saying one thing and meaning another. And when I read poetry, it says one thing and only means one thing. I feel slightly disappointed. I, I do want to come at poetry from uh, a different direction to understand what it's trying to say rather than just have somebody tell me they are happy or they are unhappy much better that they tell me they've mended a puncture in their tire and I may take from that what I will but it might mean that they're feeling happier or they're feeling restored in some way let's say. That was Jonathan Davidson. Now it's over to you to write a poem about a technological process. Try making a list of different processes and think about which ones could work as a metaphor for something in your life or the world at large. And as Jonathan said, learn more about it. Draw on the language, history and culture surrounding that process. As always, we'd love to hear what you come up with, so please send it in and it might be featured on the blog or podcast. You can find details of how to submit, along with more information about Jonathan and his book A Common Place on the website poetrynonstop.com. Make sure you check out the second half of this conversation where you can hear more about the book and what makes it so unusual, as well as hearing a couple more poems. But for now, I'll leave you with Jonathan's printing poem again for inspiration. Printing. As sheet after sheet of lightly embossed lust is lifted from the press of ourselves, this industry we've purposely established is not unlike the printing of a book. The little letters forming on our tongues, our consonants and vowels of what's unsaid but finds itself repeatedly imprinted in sweat for touch to read a meaning there. We speak the sentences that make the moment as close to permanent as flesh can stand and take the words to heart and let them lie enfolded, trimmed and bound but books are dead before the ink is dry. Take off your glasses, put down what you're reading, let us apply our typesetter's eyes and nimble fingers to make another page of hard-pressed text.